Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, perhaps this is the uh, first time you've ever heard a sermon on Exodus 21, and uh, perhaps the first time you've heard a sermon on any chapter after Exodus 20. Uh, The book of Exodus is a very exciting book, as I'm sure you're well aware. Uh, From Exodus 1 to 20, uh, it tells the story of Moses and the people of Israel in bondage in Egypt, and how God poured down judgment upon them, the Egyptians, uh, with the ten plagues. Uh, I believe last time I preached here, I might have preached a sermon on uh, frogs, frogs, and more frogs. (laughs) And uh, so it's an exciting uh, book of the Bible, and it tells of the great escape of Israel through the Red Sea and their journey through the wilderness where God uh, performed several miracles to provide for them and protect them, providing uh, water from the rock and manna from heaven and giving them victory over the Amalekites while in the wilderness. And then, of course, they ultimately arrive at their goal, Mount Sinai. They were called out of Egypt. They were freed. They were delivered from bondage in order to worship the Lord uh, and Him alone and not the false gods of the Egyptians. And that scene was accompanied by thunder and fire and thick, dark cloud. And uh, then Exodus transitions um, into a new part of Exodus, uh, in Exodus, at uh, the end of Exodus 20 and the beginning here of Exodus 21, to a new part known as the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant, which isn't quite as exciting as what's come before. As one commentator put it, it doesn't make for very exciting reading unless one happens to be a lawyer or a historian. Nevertheless, this section of the book uh, is still God's inspired Word, and uh, the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 are applicable where he says to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that applies to this passage as well. And while uh, this section may not be as exciting at first first glance as we work through it, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think you'd be surprised to see how it reveals God's marvelous character to us. It reveals His wonderful justice and His mercy for His covenant people. Notice how it begins in Verse 1, when it says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Uh, This already is a far different experience than they experienced in Egypt. Uh, In Egypt, there was no codified law. The word of Pharaoh was the law. And it could change at any moment depending on what mood he was in or perhaps what he had for lunch even, right? Right? Whereas with Israel, God gives these laws to Moses, and then He is to set them before all the people. No one is left out from knowledge of God's laws for Israel as a nation. And so we see God's character revealed in these laws already. He's the great king over all, and He's a good king who cares for all His people, even the least of them. But ultimately, we'll see how these Just and merciful laws point us to Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one in whom God's justice and mercy is fully revealed in the flesh, in the fullness of time. 
So notice with me this theme from our passage of God's mercy and justice and how God's mercy and justice is revealed in His laws for male servants and in His laws for maid servants, and then third, in the servant of all servants. So first we have here laws concerning male servants. Uh, the book of the covenant contains ordinances that apply the principles of the Ten Commandments to the specific social context of Israel as a holy nation. In other words, these laws are not considered um, as moral law that carries over directly to us today, but we can find the principles of the Ten Commandments in these laws. In other words, it reflects love for God and love for neighbor in Israel's specific social context. It begins at the end of chapter 20 uh, with an echo of the first two commandments and gives laws regarding worship, uh, laws regarding uh, building an altar. And uh, this reflects the order of the Ten Commandments, which begins with laws on how to love God and, and then laws on how to love neighbor. Because as we learn from God's moral law that Love for God is always first and foremost and must take the priority. And so you see that reflected in the book of the covenant. It begins with laws for worship and then moves into laws that reflect love for neighbor. And when we come to the first set of laws here in the book of the covenant regarding love for neighbor, uh, it's no coincidence that it begins with laws regarding the relationship between masters and servants. Think about it. Why might these kinds of laws come first, laws regarding the relationship between masters and servants? What did God just do for Israel in the book of Exodus? Well, He freed them from slavery in Egypt. As the prologue to the Ten Commandments puts it, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so you see, this experience is still fresh on their minds, and they were to be different than the Egyptians. They weren't to treat anyone like they were treated in Egypt. That would be unthinkable. And so we read in verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. Now, immediately, we have to just pause here and address the elephant in the room, as it were, we come to this passage with a lot of baggage, and that's due to our history as a, as a nation, right? According to the Government of Canada website, between 1629 and 1834, there were more than 4,000 enslaved people of African descent in the British and French colonies that became Quebec, Ontario, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and New Brunswick. The colonies denied their humanity reduced them to property to be bought and sold, exploited their labor, and subjected them to physical, sexual, psychological, and reproductive violence. It's, of course, a very sad history. And we know the history of slavery in the southern states, um, and we know about human trafficking today, and so when we hear about slavery in the Bible, we tend, we tend to think of what's known as chattel slavery where people are captured against their will, 
and enslaved and then treated as personal property of their owners for life. A commodity that could be traded or sold like livestock or furniture and easily used and abused. And so let me just be clear at the outset that the Bible has nothing to do with that kind of slavery or condoning such a horrible practice. The Bible condemns chattel slavery as we know it today and has been uh, the basis of abolishing that kind of slavery throughout history. Uh, Just look at the example of William Wilberforce and how he worked to abolish the slave trade based on what the Bible teaches. And so we have to see the differences between what we know as chattel slavery and what can, is really known in the Bible as a voluntary, a voluntary indentured servitude. A voluntary indentured servitude. And so in Israel, to begin with, servitude was voluntary. Uh, if a man was poor and needy and could not provide for himself and his family, either because of negligence on his part or some kind of sin he committed, maybe he stole, he was a thief and got caught, uh, or because of some bad life circumstances, he could hire himself, he could willingly hire himself out uh, to the service of others. And remember that this is not Canada in 2023. There were no social services, no universal health care, no welfare checks, or any other kind of government help like we know it today. And there were no banks where you could take out a loan. This was it. You either starve, and if you have a wife and kids, they might starve too. Or you could work for another person to provide for yourself and your family. You see, this type of servitude offered a person in a very difficult situation. It provided them hope, a second chance especially if they were foolish and squandered what they had. And it preserved their dignity and worth as an image bearer, as it wasn't just a a free handout, but they could feel that they were truly working hard to get themselves out of poverty. And they lived. They lived in their master's home where they worked hard in exchange for room and board and an honest wage. And so this was a voluntary indentured servitude. Involuntary slavery was forbidden in Israel, even in this chapter. Just a few verses later, notice we read in verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And so that warranted the death penalty in Israel to steal a man and force them against their will into slavery. And so again, chattel slavery is a flagrant violation of God's law. Not only was servitude voluntary, but also notice we see here that it was temporary. Verse 2, it says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he should go out free for nothing. Uh, This is the Sabbath principle that we see in the fourth commandment. Uh, Here we see the Sabbath principle with regard to servitude in Israel. A male servant would work for six years, and then in the seventh year they had the option to at that point go free. 
They had served their time that they had committed to, and now they could re-enter society with a second chance at life. Uh, And so this law prevented perpetual servitude. And on top of this, if they decided to go out in that seventh year, their master was in fact required to send them off with a care package. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, we read in Deuteronomy 25 verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. I mean, what a blessing that would have been for uh, this servant and potentially his family as they leave their master's home. Uh, The master was to set them up for success in life. They got this, not just a a stingy care package, but he says, provide for them liberally from your flocks and uh, your you know, threshing floor and, and send them off with some wine as well. And what does this mirror in Israel's recent history in the book of Exodus when they went out free? When God brought them out, you may recall that uh, He brought them out of Egypt with gold and silver and clothes on their back from the Egyptians. And so Israelite masters were to be grateful for their redemption and to demonstrate their gratitude by imitating God and obeying this this law of a care package for servants when they go free in the seventh year. And so as one commentator put it, the purpose of slavery in Israel was to train men and women to become productive members of society The reason they had to become servants in the first place was because they were in debt, sometimes through their own negligence and sometimes to make restitution for a theft. In such cases, their servitude was made necessary by their sin. But rather than being condemned to a life of perpetual poverty, they had a chance to improve their situation. Slavery was God's way of training irresponsible men to manage their own affairs. And so it's not slavery as we think of slavery today, but voluntary uh, servitude. In fact, I prefer to just translate the the words here as servant, when your servant goes out, because there's so much uh, baggage that comes in our day and age using the word slave, and it can be translated as as servant. Uh, But uh, the servant really became a part of a a stable household here, Uh, learned valuable job skills and life skills as they spent time with that family, and was ultimately being prepared for a life of freedom. And so there was a redemptive purpose behind these laws that God gave to Israel. A final difference between chattel slavery and biblical servitude is that in these laws, we see the institution of marriage and the family is preserved. In chattel slavery, husbands and wives were often, are often ripped away from one another for good, and children are separated from their parents. Marriages and families are destroyed, sadly. But notice the goodness of our God to preserve marriage and the family. In verse 3, He says, if He comes in single, He shall go out single. 
If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. And so, preserves the marriage covenant. Now, it gets a little more complicated if a man begins his time of servitude as a single man, and then his master gives him one of his maidservants as a wife. In verse 4, it says, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Now, how do we understand this? Uh, This doesn't seem right at first glance. But think about it a little bit more carefully then. The husband and father in this situation is a man who had gotten himself into a great amount of debt and was so poor he couldn't even provide for himself. And so as he goes free now, the question is, has this man learned his lesson? Has this man learned his lesson? Has he become responsible enough to take care of not only himself but also dependents now? Well, so that the wife and children aren't at risk, they are to stay under the protection and provision of the master while that is to be seen. If his his servitude has indeed prepared him to be a responsible uh, citizen in society and a responsible husband and father apart from the safety net of his master, then he could buy his wife and children's freedom and be united with them immediately under his own roof, according to Leviticus 25. But if he hasn't learned his lesson and gets himself back into debt, then his wife and children would suffer those consequences, wouldn't they? It would be devastating for them. And so the master, you see here in this law, served as a a sort of insurance policy during this probationary period. And he, of course, remained married to his wife and was the father of those children in the meantime. But another option was available to him. We see in verse 5 that if he decided it would be better for him and his family to remain in the master's home for life, where he would continue to have a wage, a roof, Uh, over their heads and bread on the table, he could become a servant for life. And we'll come back to these verses later. But do you see in these laws the mercy and justice of God? Do you see His compassionate care for His people, even the least of them, who have become poor and needy? He gives them an opportunity to be taken care of and to even get a second chance at life. Now, we may not be in the same cultural situation today, but we learn something about the love and justice and mercy of our God that should characterize our relationships today. And so, if you are an employer, imitate your heavenly Father. Imitate your heavenly Father by practicing justice and mercy towards your employees. Paul says in the Colossians 4, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so, don't exploit your employees for selfish gain, but treat them fairly and justly and with mercy. And when we strive to help those who are poor and in debt, this is what true mercy looks like. Granted, in crisis situations, you need to give people immediate resources to survive, But to just give them free handouts forever, 
doesn't preserve their dignity and teach them how to be responsible citizens in society. We ought to strive to equip them for life. It says that saying goes, right? Give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Or teach a man to fish and what? Feed him for life. And so let's strive for this type of mercy towards others. Well, secondly, notice then that was laws for male servants. Notice, secondly, laws for maidservants here. In verse 7 we read, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall go, not go out as the male slaves do. <clears throat> now again, at first glance, this law seems uh, unusual and strange and, and unfair even, perhaps. And why is a man selling his daughter as a slave? These things are jarring for us to read in the Bible at first glance, no doubt. Well, when we consider the cultural context, once again, we see the mercy and justice of God in these laws. What you have here is a poor man who struggles to provide for himself and his family, once again. And so, he's not trying to just get rid of his daughter or to selfishly use her to profit himself. Rather, he's lovingly caring for his daughter and seeking to improve her prospects in life. What's really going on here is an arranged marriage. Now, arranged marriage is a very foreign concept to us in our culture today, but it's, it's very common in other parts of the world today. Uh, there's even reality shows about this, uh, one called Indian Matchmaking, about arranged marriages in, in India. And this has been a common practice, very common throughout world history. And so, the hope here is that this poor man's daughter would become a permanent member of a wealthy man's household by either marrying his master, mar- marrying this master, or, ma- or marrying the master's son. And so she entered into a form of conditional servitude. She entered into a form of conditional servitude, and she holds the status of a married woman in that household and is to be treated with utmost respect. Now, of course, this kind of arrangement was subject to abuse, as you might imagine. A wicked master might treat her harshly or try to sell her to slave traders or simply just release her from servitude. And so these laws protected her from being taken advantage of in these ways. And we may think that to be released from servitude would be a good thing for her, but it wouldn't. In those days, a woman couldn't just go into the workforce like they can today. A woman in the ancient world who didn't belong to a household was one of the most vulnerable persons in society. A woman needed to belong to a household to survive and truly thrive in this day and age. And so, by not allowing her to go free, this law was protecting her, you see, from wicked men in society who might try to take advantage of maidservants. And so, notice God gave three laws here to protect them. The first is in verse 8, where we see that once the maidservant has entered the home and begun her service, there would have been a probationary period. And if the master changed his mind for some reason, notice that he is the one considered at fault. It says, he has broken faith with her. 
and it says that he has no right to sell her to a foreign people. Rather, the right thing to do would be to allow her to be redeemed by her family, to buy her back so she can return to her father's household so she's not left out on the streets, as it were, impoverished, in great danger and vulnerable in this world. The second law is found in verse 9. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. In this case, the master is so pleased with her that he gives her to his son in marriage. She's granted the full rights of a daughter in his home. He's basically adopted her. She's gone from being completely impoverished in her father's house to becoming a maidservant to becoming a daughter now in a wealthy household and a free citizen in society. Now, not every engagement and marriage has a happy ending, as we know. Sadly, sometimes marriages uh, end in divorce. And in those days uh, when a woman <clears throat> married a man, she was given a bride price from her husband as a form of financial security. So when a woman married a man in those days, she got a bride price as a form of financial security uh, from her husband, so that if her husband died or divorced her, she was taken care of. But maidservants didn't receive a bride price. So what would happen to the maidservant whose engagement or marriage didn't work out in this situation? Or if this master took a, another wife? Well, once again, the Lord gives merciful and just laws to Israel to care for the vulnerable in society. In verse 10, it says, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. In other words, he's still required to provide for her needs. He's still required to care for her, her needs. And we read in verse 11, and if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. In other words, if a master or his son doesn't care for her, then he forfeits his rights as master. The deal is broken, and she is free to return to her father's household without a redemption price. And so do you see that in the context of this time and place, how women are afforded rights that were unheard of in these days? You can look at all the ancient Near Eastern law codes, and you will not find one that begins with laws protecting the rights of slaves in general, and even more of women, except the one that God wrote that we read about here. This text speaks, you see, about the compassionate care of God for the poor, the weak, the marginal, the most vulnerable in Israelite society. It's about the dignity of human life. Here we see that our God is, as we sing in the Psalms, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows. Or in Psalm 113, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. And so we see the, the love and care and compassion and mercy of our God in these laws. And again, we live in a very different time and place. But again, as we learn about the character of our God, we are called to imitate His provision and protection for others, especially the most vulnerable in society and in, and in the church especially. More specifically, this is a call to husbands to love their wives and to provide for them protect them, and show them physical love and intimacy. 
Even though we're not bound to these laws for male servants and maidservants today, remember that they are an expression of the mercy and justice and love of God. And in principle, they teach us how we are to love others in the home and in society. And even more than we see in this passage, several wonderful pictures of the gospel of Christ, the servant of all servants. And so notice with me then how we see ultimately God's justice and mercy in Christ, the servant of all servants. The Bible tells us that we all are born into this world as slaves to sin and the devil. People may think that they are born free in this world, but as Bob Dylan put it, you got to serve somebody. you got to serve somebody. And the devil is a terrible taskmaster. He's a terrible taskmaster like the Pharaoh, and being a slave to sin is miserable and destructive of ourselves and others. And so who will set us free from such bitter bondage? Well, thanks be to God that He so loved us that He sent His only begotten Son into the world to be our Redeemer. We see Christ foreshadowed in a number of ways in our passage. You may have been wondering as I read that, how is He going to preach Christ from this passage? Well, it's really not that hard if you think about it. In a number of ways we see Christ. We see here, for example, we see here how a woman living with a bad master could be redeemed and return home. So to Christ redeemed us from the tyranny of the devil so that we could return home to our heavenly Father. We see here how a girl who was destitute and hopeless in society could gain her freedom by marrying her master's son. So too Christ is the heavenly master's son who came into this world to make us his bride when we were eternally destitute and to bring us into an eternal inheritance in heaven. We are truly free as we are married to Christ. And even more, we see the gospel illustrated in the laws that allowed for a servant to enter into a lifetime of servitude for his master. Notice again verse 5, and this it says, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. What kind of a situation would make a servant want to remain a servant for life? Love. Love. Love not only for his wife and children, but even love for his master. A master who must have been so good to him and his family that he loves him as a good master, even like a father. And so he wants to remain a part of his master's household for life. He loves his master, and his master loves him. And so the servant, you see, finds true freedom in his master's house. In such a situation, there was to be a public ceremony so that no one could take advantage of another in this situation. They were to go before God, likely before the priests in the tabernacle or temple who represented God, and they entered into a covenant before God and witnesses. And the servant was to have his ear pierced as a sign and seal of this covenant of lifetime service. And notice that his ear is pierced upon where? the doorpost, a powerful sign that he belongs to his master's household for life, perhaps even an echo of the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts in the book of Exodus. 
in love, this man will serve his good and loving master for life. And this is an illustration of the kind of relationship that we have with God. The psalmist wrote of this ancient practice in Psalm 40 when he wrote, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Literally, the Hebrew there is, but my ears you have pierced, O God. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. You see, true freedom is not found in living however you want, but in serving God for life. And He's the greatest, most loving master you could ever serve. He treats us as beloved children and takes care of all of our needs. And Psalm 40 is ultimately speaking of Christ, according to Hebrews 10. Christ became a servant for life in our redemption. Although He's equal with God, He became a servant for our sake. As Jesus said in Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You see, our Master, Jesus Christ, first became a servant for life for us. And He served His heavenly Father in our redemption and was perfectly obedient to all of His commands. He loved serving His Father, His Father in heaven, and He loved His Father so much that He was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He was pierced, but not in His ear, but in His hands and feet and side on the cross. And through His blood, we've been set free from slavery to sin and death and the devil forever. Not to serve ourselves, but to serve Him who first loved us and died for us. And why would you want to serve anyone else than the Lord Jesus Christ? As we confess in Hadeberg Catechism, question and answer one, what's your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. And so, beloved, we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ as servants for life. And it's the greatest, most loving relationship we could ever imagine. It's true freedom. As Ambrose rightly said, that man is truly free who is entirely God's. And so let us love him and serve him forever. Phil Riken, in his commentary on this passage, uh, tells a story about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, the story is told of a visit Abraham Lincoln once made uh, to a slave auction where he was appalled to see the buying and selling of human beings. His heart was especially drawn to a young woman on the block whose story seemed to be told in her eyes. Uh, she looked with hatred and contempt on everyone around her. She had been used and abused all her life, and this time was but one more cruel humiliation. The bidding began, and Lincoln offered a bid. As other mounts were bid, he counterbid with larger mounts until he won. 
When he paid the auctioneer the money and took title to the young woman, she stared at him with vicious contempt. She asked him what he was going to do next with her, and he said, I'm going to set you free. Free, she asked. Free for what? Just free, Lincoln answered. Completely free. Free to do whatever I want to do? Yes, he said. Free to do whatever you want to do. Free to say whatever I want to say? Yes, free to say whatever you want to say. Free to go wherever I want to go? She added with skepticism. And Lincoln answered, you are free to go anywhere you want to go. Then I'm going with you, she said with a smile. And beloved, that's what it's like to belong to Jesus and to be His servant for life. He's a good and loving master. He's the best master. He's the only master who will love you forever and provide for all your needs and protect you from all your enemies. You've been delivered from bitter slavery and now are free in Christ. Free for what? Free to say, I love my master. I will not go out free. I'm going with Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we pray that You would apply it to our hearts. We thank You for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He has purchased us with His precious blood and freed us from slavery to sin and death and the devil. And we are truly free in Him, free to love and serve You and love and serve others according to Your holy law. Please write these promises on our hearts now and comfort us afresh in the gospel and enable us by the Holy Spirit to live lives of gratitude. Uh, walking in the wisdom of your ways. Help us to love others and to show mercy and justice to others and to glorify you as we look forward to the day when Christ will return and bring us into the glories of our heavenly home forever. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And please uh, turn with me in your psalm books now to hymn number 84. And uh, let's uh, stand to sing hymn number 84, Ye Servants of God.